Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program. Well, once again, it's time for our yearly check-in with our Healthy Options Tick Specialist, Dr. Beatrice Santier. Yes, as, as if brown-tail moths last month and their caterpillars and the coronavirus pandemic weren't enough, the ticks apparently did not get the memo. They're out again in the gardens, on the trails, in the great outdoors, on our pets, and even at times winding up in our homes. Ooh. Our guest today, Dr. Beecher Santier, is an internist and pediatrician living in Lincoln, Maine. She received her undergraduate degree from Fordham University, her doctorate in medicine from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. She completed her internship and residency in internal medicine, pediatrics, and adolescent medicine at St. Louis University Hospitals and Cardinal Cardinal Glennon Memorial Hospital for Children. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine and also nationally to both professional and community groups. And this past year, she had the opportunity to bring that education to even more people through Zoom meetings, kind of like what we're doing right now. Dr. Santier is an active member of Maine CDC Vector Borne Disease Workgroup, as well as the International Lyme Associated Disease Society. She is part of the Provider Education Working Group to develop and present the full-day evidence-based course, The Fundamentals of Lyme Disease. And we want to hear more about that. That's new. Dr. Santier is also the medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing Lyme and related tick diseases in Maine. Welcome back to, Del- uh, to Healthy Options, Dr. Beatrice Santier. We're so glad you could be with us today to discuss what's old, what's new, in respect to dealing with one of our most longstanding and difficult plagues here in Maine and beyond. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rhonda. It's great to be with you. So here we are in the May 2021 edition. And well, where do we begin? Well, the ticks are the ticks are out. They have been out. You know, if we have uh, temperatures that get above freezing, ticks become active. And so any sense that uh, the snow keeps them down is just not real. Um, it protects them. It let, helps them survive the winter. And so um, ticks are definitely active again. This time of year, you're most likely to encounter uh, adult black-legged ticks um, or deer ticks, as well as uh, dog ticks. They're out about now or soon to be out. So um, although there are 15 species of tick in found in Maine, there are probably three that we are likely to encounter. And that, and of those, uh, the deer tick is, is number one, dog tick number two, and maybe number three would be the um, deer tick lookalike, the woodchuck tick or Ixodes kukii. So Ooh. they're out, they're active. It's time to be on your guard. Well, I know back in April, uh, I was getting calls. I have been finding ticks on my cat. Uh-oh. Yeah, so oh. that was that was a month ago. So it's it, they are here. And that was one of my first questions. People think ticks don't exist in the winter. Oh, my goodness. Well, they do. You know, perhaps years ago, we, we at least were less aware of the fact that there were ticks. Uh, ticks in the winter, but maybe that's because our winters were harsher, longer, deeper freezes, and we really didn't have 
these episodes where we get such mild days, but boy, even this year, we had so many mild days. If the temperatures get up above freezing, ticks can become active. So, mm, wow. You know, uh, yeah. Go, go ahead. Well, I was thinking the um, something that may interest folks, uh, Griffin Dill and his group at the University of Maine uh, ex- Cooperative Extension, the Tick Lab at UMaine, published a really wonderful um, report on their tick surveillance for 2020. And one of the interesting things that um, from the data that they assembled is that most people are encountering ticks, guess where? In their own backyards. In their backyards. Yeah, that's not really surprising, but you know, we often think of it as something that's happening someplace else. You know, when we go hiking, and that and it does happen when we're hiking. But uh, your listeners may want to take a look at the report. It's really um, beautifully how would, done. How and would they it, find it? On, uh, it, you know, I wish I had written the actual address. But if you Google Humane uh, Tick Lab, I'm sure the report is right there on their web page. Well, we certainly want to have that. Uh, uh, we'll have that information uh, in in the archives for sure, and we'll talk about their lab and what they're doing there as, as we progress. But I, I wanted to, there were two things you, you said already. Do we have to, I mean, already, um, the woodchuck tick. Now, did we talk about that already? And also the dog tick, people think that that's somewhat a benign tick. Like, oh, it's not a deer tick. I don't have to worry. I'm getting well, the you don't have to that... worry about Lyme disease from, no. from either of those ticks, as oh. far as we now know, and oh. we know pretty well. Um, uh, but dog ticks do carry other infectors like Ehrlichia, uh, the spotted fever, rickettsias. Um, so they're not perfectly benign. The good news is we really haven't seen Rocky Mountain spotted fever as a homegrown phenomenon in Maine. Doesn't mean it can't happen. It just hasn't so far. And there are other spotted fevers that it potentially could carry. But also the Ehrlichias, um, which are uh, carried by the dog tick and, you know, can make people and animals sick. So, you know, for your animals, you certainly have to think about it. And I want to say that, uh, can carry tularemia as well. Um, again, not happening commonly, but no, no tick is your friend. Repetitively feeding blood sucking parasites. No tick is your friend. Mm. So, And the woodchuck tick, you know, we probably have mentioned it without much um, uh, fanfare in the past. It's it's not found in in great numbers on people, um, but it does carry Powassan virus. So when it does bite people, it can be a big deal. Now, there are two different um, what we call lineages of Powassan virus, the one that the woodchuck tick carries and the one that the black-legged or deer tick carries. And um, it, the disease itself is quite similar regardless of which tick you get it from. Um, quickly transmitted and it affects the nervous system. So uh, again, not a common occurrence, but when it happens, it can be quite devastating. That is the Powassan 
that the Powassan, yes. Um, Right. And I don't believe antibiotics affect that or, and there's not really that on that channel uh, medicine to help. I'm not sure what's happening herbally at this point with that, but that's something we can look into. That would be worth it. What we have is supportive care at this point for Powassan virus. And, uh, you know, so along those lines, I would imagine that immune support would be beneficial. But again, I'm imagining I don't have any data for that. So um, neurological. So that's yeah. that's neurological. And I was going to ask, what is the what is the, what are the symptoms of tularemia? Oh great Scott. <laughs> oh I'm sorry. Um, I yes I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, you know tularemia, another tick-borne illness, you can get it in other ways too. Uh, probably the most um, known way that people come down with tularemia is actually uh, skinning or dealing with rabbits. Yeah. (laughs) Oops. Rabbits are the carriers. Um, Often a localized rash um, that festers. It's really kind of a, it develops a black eschar, I think. Doesn't have to happen that way. And like the other illnesses, you know, fever, um, malaise, I guess I don't know any of the further specifics. Those are the sort of things that I think of when I think tularemia. But so we can differentiate that from Lyme disease and and some of the co-infections, perhaps. Perhaps. But let's talk about what are the, what what are the symptoms? And I think we're in a very tricky situation this year because of COVID and and mm-hmm. symptom similarities. Maybe you can speak about that a little bit and what what we're looking at. Well, you, thank you. Yeah, you make a great point that um, some symptoms really do cross over. So fever, uh, fatigue, we you know, um, present in both, um, sh- shortness of breath or cough. Now, cough is not typical of Lyme, but COVID. Um, shortness of breath with Babesia certainly happens. So, And that's another co-infection um, we'll talk about. One of the infectors that can travel yes. in these ticks. Yeah. So um, we talk about early phases of Lyme, the, the hallmark, um, most common symptom of early Lyme is the erythema migrans rash. A, basically, it is an expanding red rash, usually at the site of a tick bite. Um, but there are no symptoms that as- accompany that rash. I mean, it doesn't itch, it doesn't burn, it can mildly, but usually it's a rash with no symptoms. So is readily missed. I mean, many people never see it. We know that in the state of Maine for years now, fewer than 50% of the confirmed cases of Lyme have had have reported a rash. Um, hard to know what to do with that information because it is a little different from the rest of uh, the country's data. Is that true? In yeah. other parts of the country, more percentage have rash? When rash. we look at, yeah, when you look at the cumulative data assembled by um, federal CDC, um, there's a, the most recent study was looking at 15 years of data, uh, basically 70% of folks with confirmed Lyme had a rash. Ooh, well, you know, what strikes me as we're having this conversation is perhaps, you know, that's a really weird kind of statistic. 
perhaps they're missing so, a lot of Lyme cases. And well, then maybe we're more, we're more Lyme literate because <laughs> thank you, Dr. Santier. Um, and people will start um, the, oh, you know, I didn't have a rash, but I'm feeling that this could be Lyme because we have more, I, I don't know. We're just, uh, you know, yay, yay, Maine. I, we don't know. But well, we we don't know what what makes up the difference. I know that some um, postulate that we're we are not including cases that have just a rash because they're not getting reported. It, it's you know it's a passive surveillance kind of thing, um, and if if it never gets submitted, we don't we don't report it. So that that's one possibility. Another possibility, I suppose, is that we have a different strain you know, that, that is less likely. And, and what does it mean if there's no rash, you know, does, is that a different disease? I mean, I have a lot of questions about it. Oh, is it a different but, disease? But at the bottom line for our listeners, you may see a rash, you may not, you correct. may have these symptoms. Right. And if you do, even if you didn't have a rash, not, not the, well, I didn't have a rash, so I don't have Lyme. The importance is to re, is to place it all in context. You know, I I always worry that people take one piece of information and hang their hat on it, and it's really you've got to take the whole history, the whole picture of what's happening. So, the likelihood of an exposure to uh, to the tick, and uh, the progression of symptoms, often but not always, an expanding red rash, um, fever, headache, fatigue sometimes sore throat, swollen glands. Um, it, it can be a head to toe kind of experience, achiness. Um, uh, some people go on to develop arthritis, an actual swelling of, of a joint, but early on, that would not be typical. Typically it would be achiness in the joints. Um, so Sometimes abdominal symptoms, either abdominal pain, nausea, those kinds of symptoms, more common in children really than in adults, but still it happens. Um, and I think I said headaches, but I, I'm, yes. I guess I'm going to say it again because it is a fairly common symptom, uh, adult or child. So, so a flu-like is- symptom, you know, that's if you feel like you're getting the flu. Um, and you have a potential for a tick exposure, you should seek some care. So here we are. We used to say, if it's the summer and you have the flu, because it's not typically flu season, check that out. Now, of course, what you've described is a perfect scenario of early onset COVID. So what to do? um, Check that out. Check it out. I I think you have to go. and, uh, and, And we do know the testing is... We definitely want to get, you would definitely want to get a COVID test. The the PCR definitely would want to do that, I would say. And that's, uh, we'd say, a little bit more accurate than some of the blood testing for well, for Lyme. So how would we, it, it, what, you know, what's the instructions for Lyme testing these days? Testing is all about timing, isn't it? Um, and Lyme testing early is very, very inaccurate. Um, if, if it takes at least, two to four weeks after the exposure um, to develop antibody uh, directed against the bacteria. So when you have these symptoms, unfortunately, doing the test is not helpful. 
Um, some folks recommend doing a test early and then uh, repeating it four to six weeks later if you're not sure. My problem with that is if, if it is Lyme disease and um, you wait four to six weeks before you think about treating, you're really allowing it to progress. Uh, the, the recommendations are uh, without, <laughs> without a single study to support it. But expert advice is if you have flu-like symptoms consistent with Lyme disease with an, uh, an exposure history that makes it a, a likely possibility, you should treat. Treat it as if it is Lyme disease. Um, and that truly is based solely on expert opinion and not a single study to support it. And that's the best evidence we have for it. So it seems that if you treat something before, because Lyme likes to get into the joints, right? And it encapsulates, mm -hmm. we could talk about it, what happens. Um, it's easier to treat before it does all of that. And it, yes. Early treatment, you know, um, early recognition and treatment really seems to be our best option for resolving it. When, when identified early and treated aggressively, um, we have very good rates of resolution of this infection, you know, um, upwards of uh, 75 and 80%, even in reanalyses of, of the data. Most of the data we have to talk about this is actually quite old. You know, the studies are at least 20 years old that, wow. that we have. Um, it, you know, is there a reason to do more? Well, yeah, there probably is, but um, you, Hard, hard to garner interest for something that is generally thought to have been worked out. <laughs> so, mm. so, but early aggressive treatment and treatment to resolution um, cures people. And we, we hesitate to use cure in things where we can't necessarily prove when you're sick. And, and that is the problem with the testing, right? I mean, we don't have a, a good enough test to accurately separate those who are infected from those who aren't. Right. So Here we have it is. to it on the clinical appearance. So yes, and we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about yeah. some options of, of um, what's recommended uh, in a moment. But if you have just tuned in, you are listening to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing ticks and tick-borne illness with our tick specialist, Dr. Beatrice Santier. And uh, we are now discussing early treatment. And on the the one one channel is right doxycycline. And what do you what and not, and what about that? Some doctors, oh, you maybe it is. Here's the two pills. Here's the one. Yeah. And then, but we're saying maybe well, tell us what what's the rec other recommended recommended uh, protocol. Many people confuse preventive antibiotics with treatment. Um, the two-pill doxycycline preventive is for a tick bite. Um, that is, it was studied in a single study. There's actually been a European one that tried to replicate it now, but a single study in the U.S. looked at this and uh, the treatment is uh, 200 milligrams of doxycycline within 72 hours of a tick uh, attachment. Um, and the study suggested that that was 87% effective. The problem really? with that, that's of course, that's what, the, that's what the study said. 
What it was 87% effective at doing, perhaps, is preventing a rash at the site of tick bite, which is not the same as preventing Lyme disease. Lyme disease, um, the study did not follow the patients out past six weeks. So they don't know about anything that developed beyond that point. And the later manifestations of Lyme disease would typically develop later. In addition, they did not count in their study folks who um, went from seronegative, that is not having antibodies, to being seropositive, who did not have a rash. Well, everybody else would call that Lyme disease. And, and they would have too, but I understand why they designed the study the way they did. They couldn't be sure that the tick associated with the bite they know about was the cause of the disease. Still, there were people in the study who developed positive antibodies and disease, but never had a rash. So, so, so. The, the study had flaws. The true efficacy of those two doses is not really known. It is not well worked out. There have been some analyses that suggest maybe given, boy, your, your listeners don't want to hear all this, but there are very wide confidence intervals in the study. And maybe given the wide confidence intervals and the, this poor surrogate, maybe it's 50% effective. And so you would say, well, that's pretty good. You know, I'll take two, two pills to 50%, prevent 50% of the likelihood of Lyme disease. And is there a downside? Well, of course there is. Because if we give antibiotics very early, but they are not curative, they can create a situation, and they actually did in, within the study itself, where later when you develop symptoms, you don't have an antibody response. So we can create what's called seronegative Lyme disease. Now, if you and your treating um, healthcare provider understand that and know that if you get sick anyways, um, then we're going to treat you fully for Lyme disease, well, maybe that's okay. But not everybody actually knows that. So what's more likely to happen is they do the test, you're negative, and they say, well, at least it isn't Lyme disease. Oops. 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 So, so, so that makes me very um, cautious about that quick two-dose thing. And it's, it also makes me really <laughs> stress that, that if you present with a rash, plus minus flu-like symptoms with the right history for Lyme disease, that two pills is not treatment. <laughs> that is a prevention for tick bite. Mm -hmm. It is not treatment for Lyme disease. So treatment for Lyme disease, really, um, if you look at the early literature, which is what we really have, uh, 21 days of antibiotics is the appropriate starting place. And for some, that was not sufficient treatment. Interestingly, in those early studies, if someone still had symptoms at the end of the study, they treated them again. So the, the key to good treatment, in my opinion, is follow-up. You start with three weeks and you follow up and make sure people are completely well. 
Um, are there things that can predict someone who would need a longer course of antibiotics? Well, actually, there are. Someone who's very sick at the time of diagnosis is likely to already have a spread infection and need a longer course of antibiotics. Patients with neurologic symptoms at the time of diagnosis, so um, uh, more than headache, headache is, is common, but um, what we call paresthesias, the, the strange sensations in the extremities or skin, um, neurologic symptoms. Um, patients who have multiple rashes, so if EMs are more than one, that suggests a spread infection and they are more likely to need um, a longer course of antibiotics. And the last one is kind of obvious if you're still sick when you finish, maybe we're not done yet. So there, that, so that's my, early treatment. I, I have a feeling there's some of our listeners are yelling at the radio right now, <laughs> you know, no, the antibiotics, no. And I have seen as a practitioner that early treatment with antibiotics is why not? Because you're getting it right away. And, and I, I say this, I know, you know as, as from uh, your as, standpoint, from my standpoint <laughs> and they're homeopathics and there are herbal treatments that treat the whole body, uh, the whole idea that the terrain, we are the terrain yeah. and you, even if you're taking the antibiotics, you probably want to be doing uh, some of these other things and it will be specific to you. So it's right. not something I would say, Oh, take this and this and this. I'm, I'm not going to say that. And I don't usually on this program, um, unless it's something very, very obvious. And the reason is we want your terrain. We look, ticks live in the environment. We live in the world with ticks. Yeah. And we have to be able to adapt. We have to live in, in equilibrium and we're not because they also are infectious and they affect our terrain. However, we can do things to help our system work very well while we're dealing with whatever has come in to our, to our body. So there is the, the different prongs. There are the different uh, avenues of treatment. And I, I want to make that clear. Um, and if it's a very brand new thing and you're sick, uh, you know, consider using all the tools of, of, of the toolbox. Well, that's, that's a perfect point, Rhonda. I mean, it, we just talked about antibiotics and specifically about doxycycline and it's not the only antibiotic and there are others. Um, every person is an individual and not only wants, but deserves individualized care, care for them and specifically them in what we call a patient-centered, person-specific way. And, and that's when good medicine happens. So kind of trying not to have preconceived ideas about what's enough and what's too much. And, and the other thing um, I would add to that, if you are taking antibiotics, and I'm sure that many of your listeners appreciate this, using probiotics to uh, defend your gut and your microbiome is a must because antibiotics are not smart bombs. They're, they will attack all of the, uh, the, the bacteria, not all of them, but many of them. And so it's important to protect your gut with probiotics. If you just tuned in, 
This is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne disease, um, discussing treatment options. And let's talk a little bit about, well, we can talk about prevention, certainly. The best, yeah. the best medicine is don't get the tick bite. And, you know, we do have to say sometimes people don't know they've had a tick bite. And uh, so... And, and that's it. And all of a sudden, either there's a rash or there isn't, or yeah. I'm just not feeling well. So let's talk about that. And then, and then we can talk about what to do if your prevention failed and oh my goodness. So first well, prevention. Well, well, let's do prevention. It, you are precisely right. Um, I, fewer than 30% of people who get Lyme disease remember the tick. They didn't see it. So, I mean, it's a small percentage who actually identifies a tick, then gets sick. Um, so prevention. Prevention should really is, is pretty straightforward. Keep the ticks off of you. I mean, that's sort of obvious. And, and there are some um, personal protection methods, and then there are some environmental protection methods that you can do. And so let's talk personal first. Um, dress in a way that doesn't allow ticks on your skin. And for a lot of the year in Maine, that's possible <laughs> to wear long pants, tuck your long sleeve shirt into your long pants, your pants into your socks and create a barrier from the ground up. Ticks crawl. They do not hop. They do not fly and they crawl up. So they are likely to be waiting at the top of whatever vegetation you are uh, traveling through. Um, so if you create that barrier, they have a harder time reaching your skin. If you take that a little farther and you treat your clothing with permethrin, which is useless on skin, but excellent on fabric. Um, what we know is that permethrin treated clothing decreased tick attachments 73 times, it, 73 times fewer attachments. And they've even looked um, in one study, and it's only one study, so you always have to be a little cautious. What about in summertime when it's just too warm for long pants? If you treat sneakers, shoes, and socks, again, you decrease tick attachments significantly. It seems that they come from the bottom up. Um, in Griffin Dill's uh, report, they looked at what part of your body ticks are often found on. And I'm not going to go through all of the, the different things, but there were two things that stood out to me. Is this that is the study from the University of the University. Maine. They did some really elegant stuff with their study. I, I just so appreciate the work they did. But adults more often find ticks on their legs. For children, more often on their head. So it depends on where you are in the earth and where you're playing. You know, ticks do crawl up on vegetation, probably not usually more than uh, three feet off the ground, but it's going to be at the, the top of what you're walking through. In addition to using permethrin-treated clothes, whether you do them yourself or whether you use um, a factory-treated product, um, repellents actually work to keep ticks off your skin. So if, if you cover up, you have a limited amount of skin to apply a repellent to. Um, DEET is the gold standard. Uh, at least 23%, more than 50% is not more effective. Um, the secret to using DEET safely is wash it off after the adventure. We have 
it's got to be over 65 years now of safety and efficacy data for DEET and the problems that have developed outside of the, the rare personal sensitivity to the product, which no one can predict until you use it, um, have occurred when people have had repeated high dose applications on the skin without washing it off. I'm a simple thinker, wash it off. Um, other products that have been tested, I, I always recommend use EPA registered products because it means they have actually been looked at both for safety and efficacy. Um, so IR3535 used to be only an Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard Expedition formula, but now is in lots of products. Has been found to be as effective as DEET at a dose of at least 15%. Most products actually now sell it at 20%. So it, it works. Um, what's the, uh, Picaridin. Picaridin. Uh, seems to be uh, at least as effective as DEET. I've seen a couple of studies that suggest it's more effective and that's at a dosage of 20%. But the EPA has a great website where you can uh, tune in and look up for your protection methods. You know, what, what do you want to guard against mosquitoes, ticks? The nice thing is most of these work for both. Um, how long will you be on your adventure? And you can, you can plug all that in and get some good advice for products that will work for you. There are a couple of um, more naturally occurring products. Uh, one is uh, wild tomato extract, two undecanone. Um, I think the trade name is bio oud, but that's, that's new. Even worse than two undecanone. It's not new, but but it's it is around and it works. And I think, though not yet ready for prime time, newt catone, which is I think um, found in yellow cedar and in grapefruit. <laughs> so it's an oil from yellow cedar and grapefruit um, that's being worked on, and I have not seen if it's been released for, you know, uh, skin applications. It has been used for yard applications. So when you come in from your adventure, check yourself, see if you've got ticks on you, throw your clothes in the dryer. If you throw them in dry, six minutes on high heat kills ticks. If you decide you have to wash them first, then it takes 50 minutes on high heat to kill ticks. They don't die in the water. <laughs> so... Um, and then a shower within two hours of coming indoors and uh, not, not just standing there in the shower, but, you know, looking and feeling, rubbing, washing um, has been found to decrease tick attachments. So it's kind of the new uh, tick check. Uh, it's just more so. And, and remember the hot spots for ticks. So behind the knee, in the groin, at the waistband, at the bra line, any place where you motion upward is inhibited. Uh, in the armpits, behind the ears, and in the scalp. So um, places to make sure you look and see. And you've got to notice with your hands, because they're small, um, once we get into the nymphal season, which comes soon, you know, the high tick summer season is when the nymphal tick is active. And the nymph is most responsible for disease in humans, perhaps because it's so small, the size of a poppy seed. And the nymphs begin to become active at the end of May. So it, coming soon to an environment near you is, uh, is nymphal tick season. And uh, so you might feel the bump 
though you wouldn't necessarily see it because it's tiny. And if you feel a bump, try not to panic. Proper timely removal is your friend. And um, my favorite uh, way and a studied and effective way is with fine nose tweezers, grabbing as close to the skin as you can and using steady, gentle pressure straight up. Watch that skin tent. Don't give up. And it comes out hard. And it comes out hard because the tick's mouth parts have barbs on them and the tick secretes a cement-like substance to stay anchored. It's a good animal. It's looking for a good blood meal. Um, and so it does come out hard. Don't give up. Don't twist. Don't turn. Don't try to burn the tick. Don't try to annoy the tick. Do not annoy um, the tick. You can't, you can't smother it with anything that you think of Vaseline, it's not going to smother it. It's just going to give you a slippery tick to try to remove. Don't do it. Uh, the other thing I often like to talk about is you've seen on, on the internet, the dish soap on a cotton ball technique, maybe it will work. The concern, and I talked this over with uh, the tick experts out in Ohio state who actually did the studies looking at what works to get ticks off safely. And it may work, but it may um, end up with a tick that has been so irritated that it regurgitates. Now, that's, that's not an issue if it's a long-attached tick, but if it's a newly-attached tick, the, um, the bacteria are still in the tick midgut, at least the Lyme bacteria, still in the tick midgut most of the time. So there's time to get it off before it can actually get it. Uh, transmitted to you, unless you annoy it and cause the tick to regurgitate, do turning not, what could have been innocent into a guilty bite. Do so not annoy the tick. Do not annoy the tick. Just prompt proper removal. The other problem, of course, with the soap on a cotton ball is if it doesn't work, again, you've got a slippery tick. And that's it's an annoyed fun. slippery tick. Well, yeah. <laughs> An annoyed slippery tick. So again, you said fine, fine nose. The fine tweezers are probably the easiest to because you well, can really get underneath. They're small. And so pull you know, by the pull really close to the skin and pull out. So you don't want to separate the head from the the body. That then you, you have a then you will have you don't break. Then you will have a, a compromised tick removal, which yeah gives you some problem. Possibly. Well, if the tick breaks, again, even now, even an early bite, even something that's in under 12 hours, we're talking about you've broken the tick. And so tick guts, the fluids from the tick can have entered the wound and that can give a um, an infected bite where it might not have been if we had just gotten it out easily. So really, how do we know that? Do we send the tick in? What, this is where we can talk about the main lab, and which is great. And we've talked about other labs as well. Maybe you can give us an update since um, things well, are shifting every year. This is always a great question. Do you test the tick? If you're testing the tick to find out whether you should treat with antibiotics as a preventive, it's not going to help you. No matter how good the lab is, they cannot get that information back to you fast enough. So you need that information. Um, the, the, the 
two-dose studies said within 72 hours. There are some mouse studies that suggest 48 hours is the window during which we have the opportunity to prevent infection. Possibly. After, Possibly. If you just tuned in, listen to the replay. We did a whole story about about that one study for the two-dose antibiotic. Yeah. Continue. Yes. Yeah. So, so if you're going to start a preventive antibiotic and you think that uh, sending in the tick will give you the answer for that, not going to help you. So why would you send the tick in? Well, a few reasons. One, they will identify the tick. They will also give you a level of engorgement. They will tell you about that. Now, if you can see with your naked eye that this tick is not flat, that it's a little bit swollen, then it is a little engorged and it has fed long enough to transfer disease if it is carrying disease. So lots of ifs there. Um, so, but it also gives you information generally about what infectors are present in your area. So it, it might be useful information in the large, you know, public health population kind of sense, but it's also in in the down the road sense. So maybe you decide not to prevent uh, infection with an antibiotic. If you stay well, that's great. If you become ill, it might be interesting to know what was in the tick. It doesn't mean that's what's in you. And so it, it's important to, to always make that distinction. So the potential we, is there. And that's, the there. and yes. So it, it, it's of interest. It is not a requirement. It doesn't necessarily uh, answer the question for us, but someone who is ill with a tick that has um, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, the causative bacteria in Lyme disease, you know, it, it's a pretty good chance that that's what the, what's making you sick. So the other thing is sometimes we test the tick, the tick is negative, but you're sick. Well, maybe this is the day that those tests were not particularly accurate, or maybe that wasn't the tick that made you sick. That's, that's the, the one you found, but that's not the one responsible for your illness. So, so if you have a positive tick, yes, this tick has Lyme. Um, you know, if you've had a, well, you talked about a compromised tick removal. Yeah. Um, that might be a reason to treat. You may, or I mean, we've had this conversation hard in the past. It's really hard to know, but. Very hard to know because what's your stopping point if a person is well? But are they? Because how long does it take? And then if by the time you're getting symptoms, um, we don't know. Has they they do encapsulate? We haven't spoken about that. That they they what happens? They the bacteria well, gets in there and well, know, this is into you. This you know we haven't proven this in 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 vivo. Well, not entirely true. We have one in-life in model of what are called persister organisms now. Um, it's a mouse model that was set up, and it's a mouse model of arthritis. Fascinating, done by Dr. Zhang and his group. And they caused Lyme arthritis in these mice with the usual Lyme bacteria in its usual form, which... Um, is kind of, you know, spiral shaped. And with this persister form, which lacks a cell wall, and I, we talk about it as cyst-like, but it, it's a round body. We call it round bodies. And these persister forms, it turns out, at least in this mouse model, 
caused a worse arthritis and a more difficult to treat arthritis that did not respond to the usual antibiotics we use to treat Lyme disease. It required a triple combination of um, really potent and not usual antibiotics to resolve the arthritis. Does that happen in people? Well, we certainly have people who have persistent disease, some who have persistent arthritis. I don't know that we know yet all that we need to about this. For some people, probably yes. Is it for everybody? Don't know. My goodness. And that might be the good time where some of these other, the homeopathic regimes, the herbal regimes may be of benefit as well, because again, we're dealing with that terrain um, and and working on all these these different levels of yeah. adapting to what's around us, but also, you know, I guess there's that the sense of are we killing everything or are we adapting to it? And what's the balance between, yeah, I'd rather not have this bacteria running around my body, and I also have to feel well. So uh, there there yeah. is that 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 combination. I think this is another conversation and, and we'll, we'll have another show on this, perhaps this idea of it, what is the train if we are balanced and well, because we also also say, do we not eat well, exercise, stay healthy. If you're treating Lyme disease, stay at, that is the time to keep your, do all the right things that we know are the right things to keep our, this body that we have uh, healthy. Um, and if you're in balance with an infection, that's one thing. But if you something happens, you're stressed or something happens and you get out of balance, that's when we can see the uh, the infection become pro- predominant and then you feel ill again. Well, you raise a, an important point because there really is this latency thing. Yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll to be continued in one moment. Um, if you have just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You are listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Santier, medical advisor for Maine Lyme and nonprofit dedicated to decreasing Lyme disease and related tick disease in Maine. And we are discussing ticks and tick-borne illness right here on WERU. So, you know, there's some people who would say, that, well, is there really something called latent? I don't know. Is that just bad no. diagnosis? <laughs> no, no. That Not only is there something called latent, we've known about it since the beginning of our understanding of this illness. Um, some of the earliest papers, <clears throat> pardon me, from the 80s uh, demonstrate without question that some people, <clears throat> pardon me, going to have to take another sip. Wait a second. Please do that. Well, we, as I said, we are talking to Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and uh, tick-borne illnesses. There, there are papers that documented it very clearly. Folks who didn't necessarily have an early um, identified illness who months to years later developed neurologic illness and some who months later develop um, arthritis. Uh, I, I think it's uh, the numbers are 62% of untreated Lyme patients develop arthritis. So, you know, how do you get to be an untreated patient? Well, if you don't identify the illness, maybe it was too mild. Maybe you didn't feel that bad. You never saw the rash, didn't put together your experience of illness, or maybe you didn't have illness at all. So there is really 
latent illness. And um, so that's, that's obviously great. that'll be harder to identify because you have to think of it. And so uh, you have to keep a heightened awareness as, as a as a provider of care. Uh, you have to consider the whole pa- whole person, where they've been, the kinds of exposures they may have had, and you know, can this be um, uh, Lyme disease in someone presenting late with a neurologic complaint? Mm. So it's possible. And, and we are finding with with the, about sending the tick in that it is that University of Maine in Orono will have the addresses for that. And are you still doing? Uh, what what's happening in Massachusetts? The University oh, of Massachusetts. The, the lab at Amherst, Tick Lab at yes. Amherst, is still an excellent resource. But if you live in the state of Maine, uh, at this point, using our own in-state lab is is really um, uh, the way to go, in my opinion. It, they they do excellent work, and you can't beat the price for fifteen dollars. They identify your tick, its level of engorgement and do PCR testing uh, in, in deer ticks. They will do PCR testing for Borrelia burgdorferi, um, anaplasma, which is a different infector that can travel in the same tick, and Babesia, which is a red blood cell parasite, a malaria-like parasite that can travel in the same tick. If you send in and it turns out to be a dog tick, they are now testing dog ticks for Ehrlichia species for the spotted fever rickettsias and for um, tularemia. So we're going to have such a brilliant panel of what's in our environment. It's really, well, it's amazing to me. And, and, uh, and it's passive. I mean, this is passive surveillance. They, They test what we send them, but it's, I think a great resource for us in the state. And that's the university of Maine in Orono. We'll have that. uh, We'll have that connect the information. And there's nothing wrong with Amherst. I mean, there's still a a good lab and they do a very good job, but we have a resource. And in fact, I know that um, I've asked uh, Professor Dill about this and he says that they work uh, together with the group at Amherst too. So they're connected. It's good things. You know what we didn't talk about? We didn't get to uh, uh, yard prevention kinds of things. Let's do that. I just told you that most people are getting this in their yards. Let's do that. So um, the basic concept for uh, prevention in your own backyard is dry it out. Okay. It's called zero scaping, X-E-R-O scaping. And basically it means move the brush and leaf litter away from the house. Clean that all up. Um, any kind of ground cover that's low and retains moisture, like um, Japanese barberry or honeysuckle, those tend to increase the tick population on your property. And they're good hideouts for rodents as well. And the combination of rodents and ticks is not in your best interest for this. So, so mow the lawn short, uh, the not envy of the neighborhood lawn. That's the one that's for me. Um, if you have deer as visitors, you may want to consider deer fencing, um, the taller fencing. I mean, deer can leap over short fencing, but you may want to consider tall fencing. And there are shrubs that you can plant. You know, you can put in shrubbery and plants that are unfriendly and, um, that will tend to keep uh, invaders out. 
avoiding invasive species of plants generally is, you know, we find more and more that that's a good idea. Native plants are our, our preferred plants. And if you have a significant problem, you may wish to consider treating your property. Um, there are appropriate times of year to do it and appropriate um, agents with which to do it, um, some of which are naturally occurring. So it's not like this is necessarily a chemical activity, but it could be. If you choose to treat with, with chemicals or biologics or any agents, I strongly encourage folks at that point that they should seek professional um, attention. You know, we have a fabulous watershed and we have lots of pollinators that we don't want to uh, interfere with. So you you probably would be best advised uh, to use professional uh, folks, check their licenses, make sure they they have uh, the the skills that you want to see. Um, do you do you know what a natural product would be, or will, will well, you know, I talked about that nutcatone that oh, has yeah. been used. Um, Metarhizium anisopile. How about that? It's a it's a fungus that has been used in combination. A really elegant study out of the Connecticut Agricultural Station, used in combination with um, bait boxes for rodents. So uh, rodent bait boxes. And this metarhizium decreased uh, the nymphal ticks in a property like more than 80%. Uh, so, and reapplications bring it down farther. It's not something that you need to do month after month. This is kind of a twice a year um, do you know application, when? I think. Uh, spring and fall. Spring and fall. Is what comes to mind. Uh, you know, don't hold me on that we'll, one. But We'll get the names yeah. of those so people can look that up. Yeah. Um, a great resource is the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station's Tick Handbook. And it's, it's I believe it's available on um, Maine CDC's website. It's on the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station's website. It's authored by Kirby Stafford, who has been in this work for a very long time and continues to, to look at, you know, what we can do to protect our property. If you're, if you have a swing set in your yard for your kids, and I know the tendency is to put that in the shade near, near the edge of the property, bad idea, bring it out into the sunlight in the dry space. The edge of the property between you and the woods is probably the highest risk space for, for ticks. Um, these ticks like, uh, brushy areas, especially the edge of the woods, um, uh, wood piles. So the wood pile away from the house, not close to your house. Uh, it's a lot of this is common sense stuff, but if you're trying to kind of dry it out, ticks don't like it dry. We had a pretty low tick year last year, um, a low Lyme disease year. Hard to know if that was because, um, the uh, nobody was reporting it or because it was confused with COVID or because it actually was a low year because we had a drought. And so a lot of the nymphal tick activity was diminished last year. So could be, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We don't but, know. People didn't go to doctors as much. And nobody went to the doctor, right. And now people are, so we'll have long lasting uh, Lyme disease that we're, uh, we're, um, have to contend with. We are 
just about. We're just coming to the end. I cannot believe it. Another another year, another program. I want to just do one quick thing. You know, we talked about uh, Promethean, uh, and if you were treating yourself, it is in the wet stage. It is toxic to cats, but not when dry. Is that the case? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, you know, the, the safety sheets on Promethean are really great, and you can access those online too. But the way to treat your clothes is to spray them wet or dip them, I guess, but I, I prefer to spray them, get them wet and let it dry. While it's wet, exactly as you point out, it is toxic to cats. Cats don't have the enzyme to break it down. We do, actually. Um, once it dries in, it's pretty inert. It's okay. it's there. That's... And, you know, ticks fortunately lack that enzyme too. So it's and not can... good for them. You can get your clothes treated at insectshield.com and we get no, we have no uh, financial investment in no, that. And the nice thing is they, they'll treat your clothes Yes, you send them in. So and there's also a company in, in the state. We get nothing from these guys either, but I like them. Dog Not Gone over in Skowhegan. Um, they have a line of clothing and products that are treated. So, you know, it's, know. there are right. places... We will have all of that on the website. We didn't get to talk about your fundamentals of Lyme. How can people get a, a hold of that? Or is that, well, no? They, they, can't. Uh, they can't. They can't. But we are, know, this is our fundamentals of Lyme. And the, the, that is actually a, a program that I have worked on for a number of years. And uh, yes, it, to be it, continued. it's been being presented. It's presented only for so far medical professionals. Oh, okay. Well, if you're a medical professional, we'll get we'll get you information on it. I cannot believe we've totally run out of time. Another another edition. Our guest on Healthy Options today has been Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you so much for being here again on Healthy Options. It's always a pleasure. We have links to the show and to other information that was mentioned and to previous interviews with Dr. Santier. And when we post the show on the public affairs section of WERU, you'll be able to get all of that information. In the meantime, if you missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org to find out about our recent programs on demand. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown for of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. 